Welcome to Forming the Spirit Within, a teaching ministry of Pastor Brad Riley. Pastor Brad is an associate and teaching pastor at First Church of the Nazarene here in Wichita, Kansas. He is the founder and director of the Merciful Servants of Christ, as well as the author of numerous articles. And now, here's Pastor Brad. I'm doing well. How are you? Is everybody warm? Is it warm enough in here? I can't get warm. I don't know. I just, I think that, that I've, I've crossed over that line where I just, you know, just cold all the time. I don't know what it is. I know. It just hit me, you know. I just, wow, I can't get my, my fingers and my toes are always cold. Good to see you this morning. Um, we're still in John chapter 12. So this is uh, part three, I think, of John chapter 12. I just put part two up this morning, so it's there on the podcast. Um, I just handed out to you a little prayer card to stick in your Bibles. I wanted to, uh, I, I found this prayer, I actually started listening to a Bible study on online on a podcast, um, and, and they prayed a prayer before they studied together. You know, I always pray at the end of our studies, thanking God and asking Him to enlighten us. But I thought, you know, I like this prayer. So I reworded it. It was real, it had a lot of these and thous and some things. I took a little liberties with their prayer and reworded it. And, uh, and I, I like this. I think this is a good way to start. So I'm just going to invite you to keep that tucked in your Bible. And each week, let's start praying that together. I love the sound of people praying together out loud, that, that corporate prayer. So, as we begin this morning, would you look at that prayer card, and would you pray with me? Illumine our hearts, O Master, lover of all humanity, with the pure light of your divine knowledge. Open the eyes of our hearts that we may understand your gospel teachings. Implant deep within us the fear of your blessed commandments, that through them we may conquer all carnal desires and may be transformed to live both thinking and doing the things that are pleasing to you. For you, O Lord, are the light of our souls and bodies, and unto you we give all glory and praise together with our Father, who is from everlasting, and the all-holy, good, and life-creating Spirit, now and ever, and unto ages of ages. Amen. Thank you. Let's keep that tucked away in our Bibles. Or books, whatever you have with you. Well, as we look to the second part of John chapter 12, we're continuing to listen in on this, this dialogue that Jesus is having here on the last week of his life. This is after the triumphal entry, and um, in, in verse 20, we see a kind of a transition. We don't know exactly what day of the week this is. John's not concerned with that, but we, because of what we're going to see at the, towards the end of this dialogue, not this morning, but at the end of next week's, well, next week's Thanksgiving. We won't be here next week, uh, so go have dinner with your families, okay? Um, but then the week after the end of some of this dialogue makes verse 36 actually makes us think that this is the very end of kind of like right before the the preparation day for the 
where he meets in the Passover and, and uh, prepares for the Passover, that last night of the Last Supper, all that. This is kind of like the day before, we think. Um, after the triumphal entry, after the cleansing of the temple, we think some of those things that, you know, John doesn't mention the cleansing of the temple, but we believe we're going to look at some things that show this is maybe after that. So while we don't know what day it is, he starts with that word now. Now. He wants us to, that's a word where John wants us to take notice. Now, this is very important, okay? So I'm going to read verses 20 through 26, and then we'll, we'll discuss that. Now among those who went up to worship at the feast were some Greeks. So these came to Philip, who was from Bethsaida in Galilee, and they said to him, Sir, we wish to see Jesus. Philip went and told Andrew. Andrew went with Philip and they told Jesus. And Jesus answered them, The hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. Truly, truly, I say to you, Unless a grain of wheat falls into the earth and dies, it remains alone. But if it dies, it bears much fruit. He who loves his life loses it, and he who hates his life in this world will keep it for eternal life. If anyone serves me, he must follow me. And where I am, there shall my servant be also. If anyone serves me, the Father will honor him. Let's stop right there. This is, a, uh, this is a passage, a very interesting passage. Uh, we're going to ask a lot of questions of this passage uh, this morning. And I, I want to just make a comment on this idea of uh, this phrase in, in verse 21. Sir, we wish to see Jesus. The big question of the Greeks. Sir, we wish to see Jesus. It's not really a question the way it's phrased. But in their hearts, they must have questions. They want to see Jesus, these Greeks. We're going to talk about why Greeks, why, why is it important that they're Greeks? Who are these Greeks? But I want to tell you, when I was, uh, this phrase, John 20, 21, I mean, John 12, 21, is a scripture that has always stuck in my mind because when I, uh, when I went to San Antonio to pastor First Church of the Nazarene there, and uh, one of the first things I did was uh, change the pulpit that they were using. The pulpit they were, the pastor who had preceded me was about six foot four. <laughs> and uh, <laughs> the pulpit hit me just right up here, and I didn't feel comfortable in it. So I, uh, I thought, do we have another pulpit? And they said, I don't know. Do we? And we went rummaging around in the back and looking, and I found the old church pulpit, which I love pulpits, okay? I love big pulpits. And I like to be able to spread my Bible out there, put my notes out there. And I want a shelf underneath is even better for a cup of water. If my voice gets a little dry speaking. And, and uh, you know, it's the movement in all the modern looks is they want to go away from pulpits. I, I, I don't like that. So I'm coming through. So I said, what about this old, well, look at this old pulpit. I found it in the back all covered up and dusty. It was the first uh, Saturday night that I was there. And, uh, you know, a couple, my my secretary and her husband were there in the church too. And he was actually an ordained elder. He was a colonel in the Air Force and kind of served as an associate pastor for the church. And uh, we were all, he said, they said, well, we we haven't even seen that pulpit. I mean, last, that other pastor, he'd been there for so many years. And and, 
So they said, let's get it out. So we got it out, dusted it off, set it up there, and right on the pulpit, as you stood behind it, right there in a little brass plate, was John 20, 21. Sir, we wish to see Jesus. Wow. I said to myself, when it hit me. Wow. When I stand in this pulpit, they're not here to hear me. They shouldn't hear me. They should hear and see Jesus. That, was, that, that impacted me. Well, fast forward. Um, when I came back to this church in 2002, um, I stepped up to the pulpit and the old pulpit, the one that had the stone cross on the front, remember that, the big wooden one and had that stone cross on the front? And, uh, and I stepped up there for the first time and guess what I saw? That same plaque. John twenty twenty one. Sir, we wish to see Jesus in the name of the family that had donated the pulpit. I'd never noticed it before. But I wasn't the preacher of the church either. I, you know, if I went up to the pulpit, it was to make an announcement or whatever. But it somehow, I thought, wow, there it is. Uh, so, you know, maybe all old pulpits used to have that on them. I don't know. But I thought how how fitting, and it was it was impactful to me as a as one to stand and preach. And so, um, as I thought of that this morning, I thought of this prayer that I gave you that prayer card that we used in the beginning. <coughs> And, you know, that prayer is for, for Jesus to illumine our hearts and our lives. And, and so when our lives are illuminated, people don't see us. They see the light of Christ. I love that. So that inspired me to want to just adopt that prayer as a kind of a usage for us to remind us as we begin study. After we've done this for four years. <laughs> Started in August 2014 and here we are in August, what? November, almost Thanksgiving of 2018, and it's like, maybe we should pray before we study, not just after we study. So there you have it. Um, let's think about the scripture. Why does John want us to know that some Greeks came to see Jesus? He's not being uh, racist or anything when he calls them Greeks, okay? Um, he but the term Greek doesn't always mean Greek in Scripture. Sometimes the term Greek means non-Jew, just anyone who's non-Jew, the Gentiles of the world. And that shows you just how prevalent Greek culture was in the world. That, oh, just everybody who's not a Jew must be a Greek. I mean, Greek was really planted. No matter how hard the Romans tried with their Latin language, and their Latin culture, they could never overtake the Greek influence. The, it's called Hellenistic influences, things that are Greek or Hellenistic. The Hellenistic influence in the world was huge. It, 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 when Greeks had conquered the world, it was just uh, the known time through uh, the great uh, Alexander the Great. He had spread the Greek culture so broad and so wide and so deep that everyone was just called Greeks. Now, were these Greeks? Probably, yes, there were Greeks. They were actual Greeks. Why? Well, we can't prove it, but we think we can, uh, just simply because it's interesting 
that the Greeks went to ask Philip. Why did they ask Philip? You know, that's one of the 12 disciples, right? Philip. Why did they ask Philip? Isn't that interesting? He's not a prom, not as prominent as, you know, like at this point in the story as Andrew or Peter or somebody like that. But John wants us to know, you know, I remember those Greeks went to ask Philip first. But then what did Philip do? He went to ask Andrew. Philip wasn't quite sure what to do with this request. Well, do you think the master should be bothered with these Greeks right now? I mean, this is busy week. Look at these crowds. Look at all that's happening. Um, so he goes to ask Andrew. Well, why do you think he asked Andrew? We're asking a lot of questions of the text this morning. Why, why did he ask Andrew? What nationality was Andrew? Well, we think he was Jewish. We think they're all Jewish of the 12 disciples. But maybe this name gives us a little clue about Philip. Is Philip a Jewish name? Philip's not a Jewish name at all. Um, in fact, Alexander the Great, the great conqueror of the world for Greece, was the son of Philip, the great Philip, King Philip. So it's a, it's a rather Greek name. Now, it tells us in the text right here that we read this morning that Philip is from Bethsaida. Now, that's up in the Galilean area, right near the, the borderline of the kind of the northeast side of the Sea of Galilee, okay, very near what's called, when you cross over there outside of Israel, you're in what's called the Decapolis. The Decapolis. So you may know what Decapolis, we've studied it before, but you might have forgotten. What? Ten cities. Ten cities, that's correct. The ten Greek cities. Okay, these were ten. There was a large area of Greeks in the Decapolis, and all the cities had names uh, that were Greek. And so Philip was from around that area. It, it maybe, maybe he had some Greek in his bloodline or something. His family named him with a Greek name. To, to name a young Jewish boy Philip was kind of interesting. So we don't know for sure if Philip was Jewish or Greek, but he definitely was a disciple, so we would believe he was Jewish. Um, but there's an interesting, interesting question we need to ask about these Greeks as they come to Philip, they, they state their purpose. They want to see Jesus. They don't say why they want to see Jesus. So we have to ask, why do you think they wanted to see Jesus? And why was that so important that John put it into his gospel? What is it? Any, any ideas? You can... they, they had heard about him there. They've clearly heard. Imagine everyone in the city by now has heard what's going on with Jesus. They had heard of it. And they'd heard about it in the Decapolis because they came down. Okay, so they—it's also Passover. Okay, now don't miss this. But in the very first, it says, "Now, verse twenty. Now, among those who went up to worship at the feast, why does John say to worship at the feast? I think he's telling us that these Greeks were going there to worship." I think we see Greeks who have maybe converted in some way, shape, or form to the Jewish faith. They're probably not maybe completely converted where they're circumcised and everything, but they are. They're definitely maybe believers. There were people that converted to the Jewish faith. 
all the time. I mean, not a lot, but I mean, there, there were. You had a process you could go through and convert um, to recognize the one true God. And so John's given us a clue here. These people came to worship. They're coming along with everybody to worship. Um, can't pr- I can't prove it exactly. Maybe they were just going along to worship with the other people that were going to worship. But it seems to make sense that these are Greeks who have come to know the one true God somehow, and now they've heard about, about this Jesus. And remember, this is probably right after the cleansing of the temple. And so they're thinking, whoa, everybody heard about the cleansing of the temple. That was a huge event. And they're coming to see this Jesus. We want to see this one who we've heard so much about. Now, I think that's important because in this transition, we're, we're, just, we're coming up on chapter 13. And 13 through 17 is like a flowing, is like this time, this last night of Jesus' life. Okay, there is a lot of, te- going to hear a lot, if you look in your Bible, a lot of red words, red letters in 13 through 17. Um, because this is a lot of the, the, the last words that Jesus has to say before the cross, and John brings a lot of that out to us. But, but right here, uh, I think it's instrumental and it's important that we think, what is the purpose of John making sure that right before Jesus spends his last time with his disciples, the fulfillment, if you will, of his mission on earth before the cross, that his last conversation, it, it, he throws in some of his last conversation is with Greeks. What does that say to you? Does it say anything to you? His love Terry? Everybody. That's right. His love is for everybody. His mission has been to the house of Israel, right? Remember earlier in the Gospels, Jesus has always said, he sent his two by two out, you know, the 70 sent out. What did he tell him? He said, go to only the Israelites, basically. Only the lost of Israel. The lost sheep of Israel. Okay. So his first... Remember when, he's, remember when he was uh, the Syrophoenician woman that wanted him, that begged him uh, for the healing of her daughter? And, and uh, I think it was her daughter, wasn't it? And he said to her... You know, she was obviously a Greek or a Gentile. She was Syrian from up north. Syrophoenician. And remember what Jesus said to her? He said, what have I, you know, I think I'm paraphrasing here, but, you know, my, I've come to the lost sheep of Israel. What have I to do with you? And she says, even the dogs get scraps at the table, okay, so under the table, you know. She was calling herself a dog, recognizing him as a master. You're the, she knew who he was. And so he said, wow, what faith, you know, and grants her request. So there is this sense in which the whole ministry of Jesus has been to the, the lost of Israel, the lost of God's people. That's who he came for first. But we know what they didn't know. The Jews, Israel, did not believe he came for the rest of the world. But John wants to point out here, he's, remember, he's writing a gospel that's different from all the other gospels. And he's wanting to point out these little subtle things that, in case you don't remember, everyone, Jesus came for the world. For God so loved the world, it says in the Gospel of John 3.16. Not just, for God so loved Israel, for God so loved the Jews. It's for the world. 
So we see these things, and this is very, very important. So his, one of his last conversations here, it's, it's like the fulfillment. It's symbolic of the fulfillment of his ministry. He's now reached everyone. And there's beautiful symbolism in that. Um, we, does Jesus get to talk to the Greeks? They come and ask, sir, we want to see Jesus. Does Jesus talk to them in this passage? We don't know, do we? John doesn't answer that question. He doesn't record any dialogue between Jesus and the Greeks or them coming and falling at his feet or anything. But he does record some very important dialogue. So Andrew and Philip have come to talk to Jesus and bring this request to him. And we don't know who's around Jesus. We can assume other disciples are there uh, as well. But he says some very important things. And so verse 23 Jesus answered them, them meaning Andrew and Philip that have come to see him, giving this request. And what is his answer? The hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. What have we been hearing from Jesus all through the first 11 chapters? Over and over, it's not my time. It's not my time. It's not my time. And now, guess what? The hour has come. The hour has come. The time has come for the Son of Man. He doesn't say me. He says the Son of Man to be glorified. So let's think about the Son of Man just a minute. We've talked about that before, but it's always worth repeating. Where does this title, Son of Man, it's Jesus' favorite name for himself. In the Gospels, when Jesus is recorded talking about himself, he almost always uses that phrase, the Son of Man. Um, anybody remember the origins of that phrase? Where it comes from, it's an Old Testament phrase. It's actually from the book of Daniel. In the book, the prophetic book of Daniel in chapter 7, uh, this, this dream that Daniel has uh, that, that he's able to uh, see and interpret, there is these four empires that are m- monstrous beasts, if you will. I'm not going to take the time to go back over it all with you. But um, and those were those represented ru- rulers of the world, like you know the Babylonians and the Persians and Romans and Greeks and these people that had ruled the world with iron fists and and these images are very beastly and very harsh and very cruel. And then he says there comes a kingdom, and then there was a son of man. And you read it back in Daniel seven, and he he uh, he appears as the son of man, and he re- talks about a kingdom that is humane. And gentle, a ruler that's going to be humane and gentle. So we see the strong contrast between the Son of Man in Daniel and these other world empires. Ruthless, humane, you know, harsh and conquering and gentle. And so the Son of Man, literally from Old Testament uh, eyes, is the is the Messiah. It is the one who is to come, who is to usher in the reign of God, the everlasting age, if you will, uh, the new age, as they thought. But yet, that's some, Daniel is maybe, what, I don't know, 500 years before Jesus? Uh, maybe in that era? Not exact, but Daniel is, is uh, between those 500 years or so, a lot happens in the Jewish thought and their uh, literature and their belief, so that by the time... Jesus is walking around Israel talking about the Son of Man. Well, they recognize what he's talking about. They know that was an Old Testament term. 
But the vision they have of the, the image they have of the Son of Man, I shouldn't say vision, the image of what that conjures up to them and it brings up in their mind is a lot different. Because in that intertestamental time, we've talked about some of the apocryphal literature that's written in that time. One of the books that was written in that period of time, maybe a hundred or so years before Jesus, was a book called the Book of Enoch. The Book of Enoch is a very well, wide-read, respected, it's not in either of the canons of scripture but it was well read and they were very familiar with it and it talked a lot about the son of man but the image that it gave was the son of man as a as a war conqueror a conqueror who came to break because that's what became important to them their idea of deliverance it was a political deliverance and that had been growing over those 400 or so years between the testaments um, because they'd been such a conquered people. They were a proud people, but very conquered. Israel, I mean. And so this idea of a conquering uh, son of man was what they imagined. But Jesus isn't imagining that at all, which we know from the Gospels. He, uh, and he says, the hour has come for the son of man to be glorified. Can you imagine? The reason I gave you that a little bit of that history on the Son of Man was because of what I want you to do is I want you to put yourself in the place of those disciples and those Jews standing around that hear this. When they heard that, can you imagine what they thought? Wow! This is it. This is the deliverance. The conqueror has come. He is going to break the oppression of the Romans. This is it. That's what their mind is thinking. When they hear it's time to be glorified, wow, okay. Glory means Israel will be restored. Rome will be broken. That's what they're thinking. Couldn't be further from the truth. Here in chapter 7, it says, and the Son of Man approached the Ancient of Days. Yes, I love that phrase. glorification comes in. Isn't that beautiful? That's back in Daniel 7, yes. The Son of... There again, you see... The Christ figure, the Messiah, the Son of Man, approached the Ancient of Days, which is a beautiful image of the everlasting God, okay? The Father, beautiful. Gives you goosebumps, doesn't it? <laughs> the Ancient of Days. Now, um, so he's predicting his glory. And we know that the glory that Christ is going to bring is the glory of what? The glory of the cross. I think it's important for us to remember that um, the cross, in and of itself, is the glory of God. It's not the, the cross is not the means by which the resurrected Christ is in all his glory is glorified. It's not this just this harsh tool or means by which Christ eventually is glorified in his resurrection. No. Good theology says the cross is the glory of God. That, that grueling Death upon the cross, that horrible death upon the cross, is the glory of God. Why is that the glory of God? Because of the sacrifice of the love. Because, he, yes. He sacrificed his love for all of us. That's right. The cross shows the depth of God's love that he would go to, to redeem his creation. The cross is the glory. So Jesus is talking about the cross, not just the resurrection. Of course, we don't separate the cross from the resurrection, from the ascension. You know, we know that's all a part of God's glory and glorification. But don't miss that Jesus is talking about the cross to be glorified. They have no idea, even though he's told them, I'm going to die. They're continually, this, this goes right over their head. 
So he's, he brings some last words to them. This is kind of like a little final teaching before this last night of his life on earth. And I put three spaces here. Let's talk about what it is that Jesus teaches them. Okay? He's, he, he uses this phrase. He says, truly, truly. Remember what we've learned when he says that. Yours might say, verily, verily, or amen, amen. Whenever you, you see those words, truly, truly, amen, amen. It means Jesus is saying, listen up, boys. This is truth. Not that everything Jesus says. Everything Jesus says is truth, right? But it's an emphatic point that you really need to catch this. That's why John is using that phrase. Truly, truly. I say to you, unless a grain of wheat falls into the earth and dies, it remains alone. But if it dies, it bears much fruit. What is Jesus saying? What, what's our first teaching? What's the, put beside point number one here on the board. What is he trying to say to them with this little analogy of the kernel of wheat? Death equals life. Death, yes, death. Let's write that down. Death equals life. So much so, he says, unless there really. I think we can, can we can turn this around just a little bit, and we can say, look, unless there is death, there is no life, no real life. Okay, we're trained in our humanity. We're just it's just natural for us to think of. This walking around, physical, breathing life as life. Okay, but now we're going to get into a little bit of Greek here, okay? (laughs) Greeks are important, as I've told you. So what's the Greek word we want to, what is the Greek word that Jesus uses here for life? Well, I wrote it at the bottom of the board here, so let me write it up here again. P-S-U-C-H-E. That's an English transliteration of the Greek word, okay? And it's pronounced uh, suke, suke, okay? That's how it's pronounced. And it's the root word we get. What, what, what English words do you think of with, um, let's begin with a P.S. Psyche. Psyche, that's right. Psyche, it's root, the English word psyche comes from this. Psychology, Okay. What is, what is the psyche? That's a, what, what is that? It's kind of like our mind, our personality, okay? Who we see ourselves as. We don't even know who we are sometimes, but uh, that's for sure. But, yes, amen. So, so this idea that G, what Jesus is saying here is he's saying, unless a grain of wheat falls into the earth and dies, it remains alone, but if it dies, it bears much fruit. He's talking about death leads us to life. Because his next point is about life. You can see it here in verse uh, 25. He who loves his life loses it. He who hates his life in this world will keep it for eternal life. Now this is where we see in right there, in, in he loses his life. Right there in verse 25 is that Greek word, suke. And he who hates his life, again, suke, in this world will keep it for eternal life. Ah, different word. Okay. <laughs> Interestingly enough, he uses a different Greek word at the end there. Uh, and uh, I, I'm just sitting here realizing that, yeah, here it is. So the Greek word right here at the end of verse 25, eternal life, that word is, I'll write it on the board, zoe. Zoe. 
you know, English, a lot of Eng, in English people are named their children and people Zoe a lot. I think, I think you have a granddaughter named Zoe, don't you, Luther? Did you know that meant life? Zoe is life in Greek, okay? But we just, so, but there's two different kinds of life here we're talking about, okay? Okay, in the first Jesus is talking about, you miss this if you don't read it in the Greek. In the first Jesus is talking about who we think we are, our identity, our personality of life, okay? May, this sometimes is used for the breath of life, the, you know. Um, but, but in the end, he's saying that what we end up keeping, this person that we are, this suke, is for when we die, we end up keeping ourselves for eternal life. And that zoe is, means fullness of spiritual life, okay? It, it can be used for physical life as well, but in this context, just certainly spiritual. Life is all-encompassing, okay? Um, so very interesting that Jesus is using these words, and we just miss it if we don't do a little deep studies. That's what we're trying to do in here. Um, so number two, what is Jesus saying after he says death equals life? He's saying what? If anyone serves me, verse 26, if anyone serves me, he must follow me. What is Jesus saying there? If anyone Lay serves me, me. And serve me. So, Jesus is equating, okay, serving with, I'm going to call it greatness, being with Christ. Because in the last one, he says here, is to follow him, is to be with him. Okay? So, Jesus wants us to see, number two, that service is of utmost importance. He's equating your life and eternal life, and, and this life now with eternal life, with service. He who, let's read it again, verse 26, says, he, uh, I'm sorry, verse, yeah, 26, if anyone, if anyone serves me, he must follow me. So service is equal to following, okay? Service is equal to following. If we're really followers of Jesus, we serve him. Think about your life. And what about your life shows that you serve Jesus Christ? I mean serve. Not just believe. Okay? Not just believe, but serve. I know some of you are very active in, 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 in different kinds of service. I know some of the things you're active in. Uh, several of you served our country in, in your service to the... We just recognize that on Veterans Day, you know. Um, to serve is to what? What does that mean? Wouldn't it be to have a relationship with him on a daily basis? To love him, to follow yeah, him. Yeah, yeah. But even, even more, even more, you're right, but even more. And to serve others. Come, come back to our prayer. To do something. Do is the key word here. Come back to the prayer I gave you that we're going to. Come back to the prayer I gave you. Look, I, you didn't get one of these. Uh, no, that's okay. I'm going to give it to you. I want to give it to you. That's okay. okay. Lay them out here for everybody. Look at what it says here in this prayer. In the middle, <clears throat> implant deep within us the fear of your blessed commandments that through them we may conquer all carnal desires and may be transformed to live both thinking and doing. I love that. Yeah. Okay. Too often, 
Christianity has been reduced to a set of beliefs. It's a set of practices, or it's nothing at all. Okay, the real Christian life is serving. That's what Christ came to do. So what he's going to show them when he gets up and washes their feet in a few chapters from now. We are going, it's about serving. I can't emphasize that enough. That Jesus, his last final teaching here is before the cross. Death equals life. Service equals following. And then finally, third, is about that wherever I am, my servant shall be also. Okay? So uh, we might say there uh, something like, to follow, to really follow and to serve, okay, to follow and serve Jesus is to be with him. Not just believe in him, but to be with him. When you visit the sick, when you go and take some clothes to the needy, when you go and feed the hungry, when you stop and serve, when you take communion to the sick, when you go to a hospital to visit, when you do anything in Christ, you're, you're with him. He is there with you. Okay? He is with you. And then again, come back to our prayer. You illuminate our souls, our lives, our hearts, so that others may see Christ through us. We don't want them to see us serving them, do we? We don't do all this service in the name of ourselves. We don't want them to see us. We want them to see Jesus. That's the whole point of service, is to see Jesus. So I think these are three things that Christ is, is, uh, is trying to get some last thoughts in to teach. Um, and I can't emphasize them enough. Um, because when we come to Christ, so often we, we come to Christ in faith. And we're, we're babes, you know, we're, we're babes. And Paul reminds the Corinthians that. You just, I should be talking to you maturely, but you just need milk because you're still babes. Um, and and I, I'm still a babe, but I'm trying to be mature about my faith. I mean, we're all at some point, we can never be totally mature. Um, but it, in trying to be mature, I'm trying to go beyond just the spiritual, what I, I like to call spiritual kindergarten, okay? You know, to just... Our faith, the real Christian faith, is a thinking faith. But it's also a doing faith. Okay? We need to be thinking deeply and doing deeply. Surrendering. Surrendering surrender, surrender ourselves so that we can constantly be doing the work of Christ in this world. It's, it's a true statement that Jesus has no other hands and feet in this world but us. You know, we're his, we are his hands and feet. Uh, so, transformational. It really is. Christian life is to be so transformational that it's these things. And as we mentioned, uh, as I mentioned last week, this idea, come back and visit this idea about death for just a minute. Um, this is life right now. This is eternal life. When you live life in Christ, you've already entered eternal life. The kingdom of God is here. And it is coming still. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done. It is continually coming. The kingdom of God is continually coming into our life more and more and more until one day we're just physically with him. You know, <laughs> our soul is just with him. 
And, and, and of course, when I say physically, I mean in, in our body one day we'll be resurrected as well. So there will come a separation day where we lay down our bodies, but there's no death to the soul. Okay, The soul does not die. The soul does not sleep. Even though the New Testament uses a metaphor, you know, people, Paul talks about those who fall asleep in Christ. It's just a metaphor because, you know, it looks like you're sleeping. You're laying there without, you know, moving. But, but the soul separates from the body, but there's never death. Life goes on. It's life this side and that side. Physical realm, spiritual realm, but all life. Tell you about a, po- uh, uh, not a podcast, a, uh, what is it? A blog, a blog that I follow. Um, and it, it just got the email this morning, and it fun little tag to it that said, uh, do you talk to your dead? <laughs> that was, do you talk to your dead? The, uh, the, uh, I'll, I'll put a plug out there, not that he's listening at all. The, the guy's name is Caleb Wild. He's a pastor. Caleb Wild, uh, somewhere, I, I can't remember if he lives in California or somewhere. I've, of course, never met him or anyone, but he's an interesting guy. He's had a really unique experience to find Christ. Uh, very unique in, in his life. Uh, and he's a, he's a pretty... Uh, powerful thinker and radical thinker in some ways and I, I like most of all of his thoughts and I thought it was fascinating that his, his article said do you talk to your dead and so I thought I got to read this because you know those of you that know me we've every now and then touched on this subject and he started talking about after his grandfather died he was spending time with his grandmother and she uh, she's just talking to her husband who'd passed away and like every day, all day long, and, and he, he was at first like, well, Grandma, what are you doing? And she says, hey, he's still with me. Mm-hmm. And he got to thinking about it. He thought, these people were so in love. He says, you don't know my grandmother. They, they were so in love. They were just, you couldn't separate them. Even though physically they're separated, they're not spiritually separated. And, and I think of Rhonda's grandma, uh, Rhonda's grand, grandfather that just died. Uh, a few months ago, and we just got a birthday card for Brooke this week, and she signed it from both of them, from Grandpa. It was, you know, why? Because he's very much alive, and I've been telling her that when I visit with her in her grief, you know, and she does. She talks about, you know, just feeling him and sensing him, and and I'm I'm thinking we we've got to get we've got to get this in our heads. Death is not the end; it's the beginning of life as it's really meant to be. And God doesn't want us to fear death. You know, in our humanity, we're, yeah, I know we're human, and sometimes if I think about it long enough, the idea of not physically being here to hug my kids and my wife and something, it, it hurts, okay? Mm-hmm. But he doesn't want us to stay in that fear because perfect love casts out all fear. That's scripture. For John wrote that. First John, perfect love casts out all fear, and God is perfect love. His love for us is perfect, and our love is to be perfect for each other in Him. And and I, what I want you to hear that that is that is ancient Christian faith. Talk to your dead. It's okay. The, the 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 earliest creeds of the church, which I've taught you about, talk about the communion of the saints. And I in the Protestant Reformation, Protestants threw out the idea of praying to saints or talking to the, which is like basically talking to the dead. Okay, and that's what some of the Protestant Reformers said, you can't talk to the dead. Yeah. Well, who says? It's in the creed. It's in the creed. They've been doing it all, all through Christianity. Who says you can't? Because, you know, they're not dead. 
Jesus says, in the gospel, Jesus says, I'm not the God of the dead. I'm the God of the living. Amen. You see what I'm saying? They're with Jesus. Mm-hmm. They're, they're alive. Okay. So, you know, if I can say to you, like you are so kind, to pray for me right here and now, and I say, I need your prayers. Believe me, after, after you're dead and gone, I still need your prayers. Mm-hmm. In fact, you're so close to Jesus, you're even closer. You're with him in a way that you weren't before. <laughs> Now, I'm not saying y'all aren't close to Jesus, but you're a lot closer when you're dead that I'm going to trust in your prayers even more. What's wrong with you? I challenge anyone to really intelligently tell me that's wrong when Christians have been thinking that way for 2,000 years. No, my whole family's over there. Just so, about the- yeah, just love, love, so Caleb Wilde said, do you talk to your dead? He said, at the end of his blog, he said, you know what? It's okay. Do yeah, it. <laughs> I love that. So back to our study here. Uh, I digress just a little. I get, okay. I get on rabbit trails every now and then. I, I want you to, to not miss this last thought. This is a really good thought. Not because it's me. It's because people have brought this out that I've studied. Uh, uh, when I say something's good, it's not because I thought of it. Um, let's read that last line we studied again. If anyone serves me, he must follow me. Emphasize the word must. There's not a choice here. Okay. There's no choice. Serving is following. Following is serving. You can't follow Jesus without serving him. Okay, and you can't serve Jesus without following him. There's a direct equation. And where I am, there shall my servant be also. If anyone serves me, the Father will honor him. Okay, so where Jesus is, there we are. And where is Jesus about to? to be in, as he's talking to these people, where is he about to be? In great agony. In the tomb. <laughs> he's about to be, and he's been in constant danger. Constantly been trying to seek his life. His life on earth was not easy. Constantly suffering in, in different ways. And he's about to suffer the greatest agony the world has ever known or will ever know. His passion. His suffering. And he's, what is he doing? He's inviting. Here's what he's doing. He Don't miss the fact that Jesus is inviting his disciples, his followers, them and us. He's inviting us to into his suffering. Okay, to follow Jesus, to serve Jesus, is not just this beautiful life that has no suffering. Boy, if we'll just believe in Jesus, everything's going to go... Roses and whatever, peaches and cream, I don't know what it is, strawberries or whatever. That's not the way it, yeah, there's great beauty in following Christ, and there is great blessing and great splendor and glory, but there is also pain, and there is also agony, and there is also suffering. And we can't escape that, so we might as well embrace it. So Jesus is doing. We're going we're gonna to read, we'll, we'll save it till after Thanksgiving, but as we read the next few verses, we're going to read about Jesus' soul being troubled. Okay? Jesus is embracing his cross. He is embracing his suffering. And we need to learn to do the same. My grandma met by take up your cross when things yeah. go wrong. Jesus commands it. And right. Jesus would help you through it. In his gospels, Everywhere he says, take up your cross, follow me. So, what does it mean to suffer with Jesus? I want to 
explore that in our closing moments here because there's another doctrine that we don't know about, uh, us Protestants don't know a whole lot about, uh, but it's called the doctrine of redemptive suffering. Think that. Think about those words. The doctrine of redemptive suffering. I think I've brought it up in other studies here before, but I know some of you are newer and haven't heard that. I believe wholeheartedly in the doctrine of redemptive suffering. Not only redemptive for us, redemptive for others. When we suffer, not if, but when, okay, when we suffer in this world, we have to make a choice. We can suffer and complain about it all the way through. Woe is me. Why did God do this to me? Why is this happening to me? Or we can embrace it. And we can unite our suffering with him. Just as he suffered on the cross. And and just as his suffering brought life to others, our suffering can lead others to that life. That's what I mean by redemptive suffering. So we can pray when we suffer, God, use this suffering for your glory. You with me? It's okay to pray to be healed. It's okay to pray to have it taken away. Paul did. Three times he was suffering. We don't know exactly what he was suffering. St. Paul said, Lord, if it be your will, take this from me. We know he said that three times, and the Lord always brought back the answer, no, my grace is sufficient for you. Okay? So it's okay to pray to ask to be relieved. Now, it's, I'm not asking you to go look for suffering. Okay? Don't go look for it. That's, you're not a hero, and it's not, that's called masochism. Okay? We don't want to do that. But when suffering presents itself, don't run from it. Okay? Maybe that suffering is a disease. Maybe it's cancer. Maybe it's a trial. Maybe it's, it, it, it's just emotional. I don't know what it is in your life. It's, it's lots of things for lots of people, and everybody's different. But, but embrace it. Um, I, recent, I told you this before, too. So, you know, when you repeat yourself, you know, if you do it, if you wait long enough, it's okay, right? So I think it was, you know, to repeat yourself. I, Ronald Reagan used to say, uh, if, if you've heard this before, be kind. You know, because he said after the age of 40 comes the tendency for lumbago and telling the same stories over and over. And I'm well past 40. Uh, and he was too when he said that. But and nobody talks about lumbago anymore. What in the world is lumbago except arthritis or what? Backaches? Oh, I got lumbago. My back aches every day. I'm a, I'm a, I'm a, I need to unite my back aches to Christ. So, Rhonda, next time you hear me complaining about my back, which I do on a daily basis, you just tell me. You just need to re- have that redemptive and offer it to Christ. You know? So uh, uh, you're all, you're all going to hold me accountable because my back hurts every day. Okay. So the story is I was walking up to Wesley Hospital, uh, I think it was uh, two years ago. I was walking up to Wesley Hospital, walking in, and there was Bishop Gerber, the retired Catholic bishop of Wichita. He's been retired for years now. He just died like two weeks ago or something. Just a couple of weeks ago was his funeral service. Uh, bishop Gerber, uh, and I had known him through the years uh, just on a very casual basis. Um, and uh, he was always kind and acted like he remembered me, even though I'm sure he didn't. Um, but uh, when I walked up to him, there he was, and I said, oh, Bishop Gerber, we just kind of met on the sidewalk right outside the critical care building. And, and we chatted and talked. I had my shirt on, said pastoral staff, and he goes, oh, I see you're in ministry. And I said, yeah. And he said, where? And I said, well, I, 
associate pastor of First Church of the Nazarene. He said, ah, yes, First Church of the Nazarene. That's a beautiful church. What a great church. These were his words, exactly. What a great church. And, uh, you know, uh, doing great things for the kingdom. And I said, yeah. I said, and it is. I, he said, you've been there a long time, haven't you? I said, yeah, a very long time. He said, I remember Gene Williams when he was pastor of that church. That corresponded to when he was as bishop here, he said, we used to play racquetball together. <laughs> and uh, isn't that cool? So him and Gene Williams played racquetball together. He said, yeah, I tell you, he didn't show no mercy. <laughs> he showed no mercy, I mean. I'm sure I said that wrong. Uh, and then we used to tease him about that. I would tease him, and, and they would tease each other about, where's the mercy in your Christianity, you know, on the racquetball court? But, but what I said to him, I said, Bishop, I said, are you here to visit somebody? You know, I'm, and, uh, and he said, oh, no, I'm here for my treatments. And I said, oh, my face just coming down. Oh, because he looked pretty good. You know, except for being older, he's looking, walking good. And I said, what's, uh, what's up? And he said, oh, I have two kinds of cancer. I said, oh, wow, one isn't enough. He had two different places of his body. Just here for my treatments, just smiling as could be, just happy-go-lucky. I'm just here for my treatments. I said, wow. And I said, I'm sorry. He said, don't be. It's all for God's glory. And I said, ah, yes, I get it. Redemptive suffering. He said, yes, yes. So... You know, that's, that's, man, when you see people like that, when you see somebody suffering that can just give it to God and his glory, that's powerful. That, that leads others to want to, to be that way. So I think that's what, when Jesus is inviting his disciples to follow him, it doesn't just mean to follow him in, in all the good things. It means to follow him in everything, even the suffering of the cross. And that's why Jesus said in the Gospels, you must deny yourself, take up your cross, and follow me. That's the Gospel of Matthew and Mark both, I think, say that. If any man, if anyone, he means, is to be my disciple, you must, what? Take up your cross, deny yourself, and follow me. Is it, see, Following Jesus is equal to serving. It's equal to denying ourselves. It's equal to suffering. It is equal to suffering. That's not a great thought, but it is a glorious thought. And remember, to follow Jesus in his glory isn't just to be resurrected someday. It's to be crucified someday. We're all, we all have to be crucified. In fact, until we're crucified, we do not follow him. We may believe, but we don't follow. And be careful, because even the demons believe, James tells us. But they don't follow. It says, in St. Paul wrote in Romans 8, verse 17. He said, Therefore we are heirs with Christ, if we suffer with Him. There's no, there's no maybe. There's no, there's no option there. It's if. We are only heirs with Christ. In other words, we inherit eternal life if we suffer with him. We inherit the kingdom if we suffer with him. So, you know, I, I love to spread the love of Jesus, and I want to spread the word of Jesus, and I want to spread the gospel, but what are we inviting people to? Do we really know what we're inviting people to? We're inviting them to life like it's meant to be, but it's not just peaches and cream, as I said earlier. So, you know, that, that's what bothers me about all the prosperity gospel that's preached out there. 
Oh, you know, the health and wealth prosperity gospel that so many people are just preaching this, you know, if you just believe rightly, everything will go right and everything. I mean, they're they're just doing so much damage to the real truth and to the kingdom, uh, to people's hopes. Because you know when suffering comes, those people are crushed. Um, when we suffer, though, don't we? You know, I invite Christ to join me, so wouldn't that be the same? I mean, he invites us to join in his suffering. And yeah, I think... suffering, I, I invite Christ to come suffer with me. I, I, would, I would turn it just a little bit in and I would say, invite, uh, I, I, may I come with you, Christ. Yeah. His suffering yeah. is the greater and his suffering is the first. So we join him rather than him join us. But he's with us, certainly. Amen. Absolutely. Uh, He's with us in our suffering. He's with us in our grief. He's with us in in our trials. He's with us in everything. Because he says right here that where I am, there my servant will be also. Jesus is always with us. Yeah. You know, Psalm the psalmist in Psalm 139, where can I go from your spirit? I can't go anywhere from your spirit. Your spirit's always with me. Well, um, we'll save more verses for the next time. Uh, any thoughts, closing comments, questions, complaints? I just thought anything that happens to us, however hard or painful it may be, comes through His perfect will. That's right. And is going to be good for us. That's right. It leads to the salvation of our souls. It's got to be good for us. That's right. You know, I grew up in church back then, so some of these verses you read and read and read and read all the time. Yeah. You know what they mean, but they don't really hit you real hard. So today I was reading before I came where it said, you love your life, you lose it. You hate your life, you keep it, you know. And then down in the notes, it says that to concentrate on your own successes is to lose what matters. Yeah. It hit me today, you know, every day that you go through life and you do good things, That's a great point, Terry. Thank you. Great point. You know, uh, you as you were reading that, the word hate jumped off the page. I had circled it in here, and I meant to mention it, but I didn't. Jesus isn't saying that we're to hate life. He's using it as a comparison, okay, that we are to hate everything that is not of him in a sense of if that's what it takes Okay, you know, Jesus also said in the, in the Matthew, he says, a man, unless a man hates his father and his mother, he cannot be worthy of following me. Well, he's not calling us to go hate his father and mother. There's yeah. this, it's a, it's a hyperbole, okay? He's talking about that's how far you have to go. You have to be willing to choose me before all of them. You have to be willing to choose me. So you're right, Terry. That's a beautiful thought. Any others before we close? When you're talking about life, with Denim brought back the memory of when we first moved to Houston. Um, I went somewhere to drop something off for my son-in-law, and if you know me very much, you know I'm a pretty directional challenge. Okay. <laughs> so when I pulled out, I went the opposite direction of what mm-hmm. I should be, and I didn't know I was just driving along. My dad had the radio on, and my dad loved this song, Crazy. Mm-hmm. The old, the old Brenda Lee song? Uh-huh. Yeah. And, uh, all of a Don't sudden, ask me how I know that. <laughs> all, of, all of a sudden, this came on the radio. Crazy. Crazy, yeah. Yeah. And I kept thinking, yeah, Dad probably thinks I'm crazy to be living down here in this city. And then I started looking around, and I thought, I've never seen any of this before. <laughs> 
and then it came to me, I'm not going the right way. And it was it was just I just felt my dad so much right then. How and about it was that? Like I knew I had to turn. They had around. to turn around. You were crazy. <laughs> but anyway, that's fun. <laughs> you know, it's it's uh, it's so true. I mean, in life we are uh, we are all crazy. Okay, <laughs> at some point in life, especially if we don't follow Jesus. Okay. Um, well, let's close with a word of prayer. Dear Father, thank you for this class. Thank you for time to study your precious word. These, uh, these scriptures say so much to our soul. Would you speak to us now as we leave this time of study? Would you enlighten us as we prayed in the beginning? Would you lead and guide us to be and let you be the light of our lives, of our hearts, of our souls, that others may see you through us. And we ask this now in the strong name of Jesus Christ, our Lord, your Son, who lives and reigns with you in the Holy Spirit, one God, forever and ever and unto the ages of ages. Amen. This has been Forming the Spirit Within. I'm Roger Culver, inviting you to tune in next time as Pastor Brad opens God's Word, helping us to form the Holy Spirit within us. Until then, may grace and peace be with you.